So we're continuing in the Psalms, and uh, specifically we'll be in Psalm 110. I, I elected, as, as filling in for when Matt can't be in Romans, I elected to do the Psalms for two reasons. One, I've just been really enjoying the Old Testament. And two, I wanted to do something that was focused on Christ. Uh, and uh, while the whole Old Testament points to Jesus Christ, there are clearly parts that are much more indicative of the coming Messiah and, and, and much, much more explicit. And those are the areas I wanted to touch on. And then uh, at the time, Josh was talking about doing Revelation um, in uh, the Sunday morning series, and I thought this would kind of dovetail well with Revelation. We're going to really see that today. Um, along those lines, what, what is Revelation revealing? What's the, what's the thing that's revealed? Why is it called Revelation? Does anyone know? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the revealing of who Jesus Christ really is, which was written by John, who spent three years ministering with Jesus on the earth. And, and it's like John saying, wait, 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 let me show you who he really is. And that's, who, that's what we're going to see in Psalm 110. We've had, as, as far as context goes, this is a psalm of David. And we've looked at other psalms so far that have shown the ministry of Jesus Christ being one where he was opposed and uh, rejected by the leaders of his day. We've looked at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in, in another Messianic Psalm and the suffering that he faced there. And we've also seen the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ in his ministry. This Psalm 110 is the revelation of who he really is. In fact, your eschatology, your, your prediction of future things is clearly defined. You don't need revelation to know what God had planned for our future right now, looking forward. You can actually turn back in the Old Testament, and it's, and it's clearly defined. Isaiah will go on to define it clearer, certainly, and John in Revelation certainly goes on to define it more clearly. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians looks forward to the day that's spoken of here. Um, Jesus Christ himself looks forward to the day spoken of in here. And it's all based on that bedrock that we have laid for us in the Psalms, which is, is interesting because, again, the Psalms are these prose that are written as a chant or a, a song for the people to use in worship. And inside there, we're finding these incredible, powerful truths. We're just going to unpack as we walk through Psalm 110 now. Um, I think I'll just go ahead and read through it to start, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. I'm in the, the New American. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will find them 
Fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Those of you who have the, uh, the legacy standard version, does anyone have that in here? What, is it, what does it say there in, in verse 1? Yeah, that's a little easier, isn't it? Gives you a more clear picture of what's being stated here. And without getting into too much detail about um, whether you have the word Yahweh kind of spelled out, um, that is to say that in the Old Testament they wouldn't have spelled it out, they wouldn't have used the word, they would have uh, just done what we believe are just the consonants. The rest of you may have the Lord says to my Lord, but the Lord, the first Lord there is capitalized, and that's the way translations until the uh, legacy standard came along and changed that. The way they signified that this is Yahweh that they speak of, it's Lord in all caps. So we have God saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is David speaking, looking forward to something that's going to happen in the future. Because David is currently king. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you're, at, you're exactly right. And again, it's, it's really interesting. And it's one of those things that when we look at, should it be in there written out or not? I, I don't know. I'll, I'll go with what I'm comfortable with. And that's one of the reasons I'm in New American. Um, so we have, we have David himself, who is, is king, speaking of someone who is his Lord, being given over this this power this this who is being revealed by God himself so ultimately this is God revealing this character who's referred to as David's lord and the next step we see here is sit at my right hand this position of authority but also your right hand would be that which actually goes out and accomplishes your goals for you your right-hand man would not be the one who just sits there and, and stands by you just in case. It's the one who actually is going to accomplish things for you. You accomplish things with your hand. The Old Testament often refers to accomplishing things with, your, with God's outstretched arm, the thing that he does to, to produce the results he wants. And that's the position of this character, this Lord that David speaks, that we know of to be Christ himself. But what's most interesting here in my mind is that it says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the assumption here is that for some reason, this person has enemies. And so we know that this is predictive of, of future because, again, David, this, this character does not yet exist. And we know that it's future also because this character has developed enemies in some way, shape, or form. And we've seen that in the other Psalms we've covered so far. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, there's, there's this time period that is between the creation uh, or the, the opposition of these enemies and when God will actually have his son, who is at his right hand, will actually then come forth and make his enemies the footstool for his feet. Eventually he will stand above them and he will conquer them. And that's what this psalm is ultimately about. So that's the introduction of what we see here in verse 1. 
In the Old Testament, we have this development from Genesis 3 at the fall of man that there is a seed that is to come. There is one who is to come after, uh, after the fall that will crush the serpent. There's the one that is to come in the future that will redeem man from the separation they have with God. The reconciliation will come from that person. And we see that in, in looking forward, even uh, with Eve and her sons, the hope that one of them would be the person who would do that. And then we saw with Noah, and his name was looking forward to the salvation, that maybe he was the one that would bring that salvation. And they just keep looking forward for this seed, this one that will be, be brought forth. So this, there's this idea then that uh, due to the promises that are made to David, I think back in 2 Samuel 7, we see this covenant that's made with David that someone on his, lane, on, on his line is going to um, sit on the throne. Someone on his line will, have, uh, will establish a kingdom that's going to last forever. Second uh, Samuel seven twelve. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God speaking, or actually God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David, you'll lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth. And that word descendant, there would be seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now. Just to be clear on who he's speaking of that's going to build the house, I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. It's a good description of Solomon himself, the one who we knew built the house for God, as well as the one who committed iniquity and God chastised him. My loving kindness shall not depart from him, so I took it away from Saul, when I removed, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's this promise to David at that time that there's going to come one after you, and he's going to be the one who will build my house in my name, but I'm going to establish your throne and his throne forever. The descendants who come from you will be where that established eternal kingdom comes from, this perpetual kingdom that will be in the future. So that by the time of, in the, in the Old Testament, there was one person who was referred to as the son of David, and that was Solomon himself, which makes great sense to us. Solomon was David's son. By the time of the New Testament, the people were looking for a son of David. Um, the blind calling out to Jesus for healing were calling him the son of David. They recognized this. Other people were, were recognizing Jesus in his ministry as being the son of David. And that's where this psalm is most frequently quoted, is during those episodes where the son of David is mentioned and Jesus himself brings forward this psalm. And we're going to turn to that in a little bit, but, but we'll keep working through here. Just keep that in mind that, that this Lord that is predicted in the future, this seed that is going to come from David, is going to be the one 
who defeats Satan that was mentioned back in Genesis 3, the seed that they're looking forward to. This ultimate son of David. So the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this Lord, again, is now tied to this messianic promise in the covenant that was made with David that he would have someone on the throne. We're now seeing that that person on the throne, this person ruling from Zion, is actually one who David himself looks up to. He'll, he'll rule from Zion and he'll rule in the midst of his enemies. Again, the idea of the enemies there has already been established. And then we have this, this picture of the people that he's ruling. The people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth to you are as the dew. And the literal translation of this is, is very difficult, <laughs> to say the least. Um, the, the best paraphrase that I could find of the literal translation was in the NIV. Does anyone have NIV? Don't worry, I won't judge you. Okay. So the picture that given in the NIV is the king looking out over his kingdom. The sun is coming up, and it's the, the people who are volunteering and going to war with and serving the king are the picture of the sun as it hits the dew that golden, golden ray and the glory of the sun at dawn as it hits the dew and everything just lightens and sparkles. That's the picture that's being given here, that his people will volunteer freely in the day of his power and they'll be in this holy array, this glorious splendor, just like when the dawn uh, comes forth and everywhere you look will be the youth of this kingdom. It's a description that's completely opposite of what we saw when Jesus first came to the earth. And certainly people weren't lining up to volunteer freely to be in his army. And we certainly didn't see even the nation of Israel itself with this type of strength. It is interesting, the, the, the description that it's the youth or to you is the do. It's this idea of the value of your youth, the value of those who are... Uh, uh, the future of your kingdom is in your young people, and just their numbers are, are, are a multitude. So that's the picture of this kingdom. We have this picture of uh, this coming Lord who must have some sort of preeminence over David to be ranked above him since David is the start of the line. David should be the one who's above all of his descendants, and instead, this one actually outranks David. But somehow the Lord, God himself, is anointing this person or is establishing this Lord as being above David and looking forward to that kingdom. David himself is looking forward to that kingdom. And clearly... Through what was told Nathan, David understands this is not the kingdom that Solomon is going to establish. This is a different kingdom that is to come. I think David would have a clear understanding of that. He's almost a placekeeper, and Solomon is a placekeeper for the throne that will someday be held by the Messiah. Then we have this shift here. So first of all, we have the establishment of the Messiah as a king. 
And then we'll have the establishment of him as a priest and then as a judge. So the Lord has sworn and not changed his mind or has not regretted it. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't feel that he's made any error here. Interesting statement. He's not sorry about this. But you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we want, it's, it's, a, it's really a stark contrast to what comes before and what comes after because here somehow the king is going to be the priest and the priest is going to be the judge. And those three things just don't tend to go together. Certainly the king and the judge go together, maybe priest and judge, but all three just doesn't seem to be the proper mix. And a lot of that comes from what we find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was this specific office of uh, priest that flowed through the line of, of Levi. In fact, we saw even in the life of Solomon, or the life of David, why was it that, <clears throat> that God was not going to allow David to even build a temple, much less be a priest? You guys remember why David wasn't allowed to build a temple? He had blood on his hands. He was a warrior king. God's like, no, 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 not you. I'm going to have your son do that. But here we find that God establishes this king as a priest and then as a judge and certainly as a righteous judge as we see what he's about to accomplish. Just in in brief, we covered it in Genesis, but Melchizedek was a priest of Salem, um, the area of where Jerusalem would have been, during the time of Abraham. And after a battle, without going into the details, Abraham uh, tithes to this priest. He actually gives this priest an offering to God. This priest had no known beginning, no known end. We're not sure exactly where he came from. He wasn't a Levitical priest. He wasn't in the line of Abraham at all. In fact, we talked about this priest specifically in Romans last week, in Romans 5, as we were talking about uh, the uh, federal headship versus seminal headship. And that, that, that's taken us up to a new level of theology. I realize that. It's beyond the basics that Christ died for your sins and was raised again, and in faith in him, you can have eternal life. This is, this is dealing with, okay, how does that actually work out? How, do, how does God have that rationally happen? And we saw that that the Levitical priests were in the loins of Abraham, and therefore Abraham, as their representative, as their seminal head, was giving tithes to this other priest. This other priest outranked even the priests that were to come along that line. And here, remember, the original hearers of this psalm would have known the story of Melchizedek and would have seen and understood that, It wouldn't have been lost on him that this priest was higher than these Levitical priests. They would have known and understand that. And here they're seeing that the king that is to come, the Messiah, is going to actually have a priesthood and it'll be just like that of Melchizedek. One that's assigned by God himself and one that's that's been present, had no beginning and no ending. Certainly the Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 7 goes into great detail, but it doesn't introduce any new information. The information's all here in the Old Testament, and Hebrews is just helping explain what's going on there. 
in Hebrews 7. What's also interesting, though, is, is this idea of a priest and a king. If you turn over to Zechariah, Zechariah Malachi, so Zechariah 6, we get the picture of where this is coming from. So right before your New Testament. Zechariah 6.11, and this is prophecy of what is to come. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So here the high priest is being given a crown. And then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, or Sprout, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will dwell or he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of the peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the sons of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. So we have this coming prediction that there will be a temple in the future that will be built by this man who will not only be the king, but he will also be the priest as they look forward. And certainly while that would have been confusing somewhat to how those things could happen, the nation of Israel would have had the understanding that that's what we're looking forward to. That's the picture that's being given of who the Messiah is. If we turn over to Hebrews 7, briefly here, it would be wrong to not touch, touch on Hebrews 7 as we're covering this. And in Hebrews 7, we have the idea of who is this priest and why is this priest different. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still, still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, the idea that a priest can only be from the the tribe of Levi. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And again, I would would say that that none of that, even that idea of the, the way that you become priest, is according to the power of an indestructible life. We saw that in Psalm 69, that that the Messiah would have the right to judge and he would have the right to reign because of the indestructible life, because of his innocence. We have all these things here now being reminded to the Hebrews, being reminded to us in the New Testament, but 
clearly present in the old. So we have this Christ as not only being made king by God after a period where he's developed enemies, then he's sitting up on the right hand of God and he's waiting. God is him sitting there and waiting until that day when he will be placed as king. And he will be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Far better than anything that they had up to that point. And that wouldn't be lost either on the Jews. They would have understood that this assigning of a priest makes this priest above even their own. Certainly looking back in in Genesis at Abraham, they would have noticed that, that that high priest was above any high priest that came out of Abraham, for Abraham was subservient to him. And now we move into this picture of Jesus himself, the Christ, is judge. And he's, a, he's an international judge. He's the judge of the entire world. The Lord, and this Lord is in the lower case. I think we're speaking of Christ here. The Lord is at your right hand. And what does he do? What is he fulfilling? He's at God's right hand. Therefore, he's the one who's fulfilling the works of the Lord that he has, the works of Yahweh, the work of God. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. We have this idea that that there is going to be future nations that he is going to deal with. He's making it very clear that there are human beings that he is actually opposed to. We know they're human beings because there's corpses involved. There's living, breathing people that, this, that he will judge. The Messiah's judgment, the Messiah's ruling on the earth will be a physical reign. It will not be just some spiritual idea of what has happened or what's going on. If we set this to where we're at today, we have Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, awaiting to carry out the judgment of the world, as well as his high priestly role on the earth, as well as king over his nation out of Zion. All these things are future events that we see taking place. Now, Christ is certainly fulfilling the role of being elevated to the right hand of God, he is certainly fulfilling the role that all nations would be subjected to him at the snap of his fingers. And he is certainly fulfilling the role of the mediator between us and God. We no longer have the need for the high priest. We saw that part of it fulfilled when the temple curtain was torn in two at the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus himself for our sins. That mediation between God and man has has now been complete. But we also saw in Zechariah, they're looking for a day, looking forward to today, a day when this king and this priest will build a new temple. And here we're seeing this is a real physical thing that's going to take place. And we look and we say, that doesn't fit what happened in Jesus' lifetime. So there's, a, there's an already but not yet component to this reign of this Messiah. And to be an enemy of Christ is no small thing. We see that 
those who are his enemies. This whole idea at the, in verse 1, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, what does that mean? Well, we see that here in 5 and 6. He's going to shatter the kings. He's going to judge all the nations. He's going to fill them with corpses. He's going to shatter their chief men. So their, their generals and, and their army leaders. He'll be beyond them. What is also interesting here is that there are presence of nations. And one of the things that, that is repeated over and over again um, is that idea that in the future, when Christ reigns in his millennial kingdom, there will be other nations. You can't get away from that. And it's not that he takes over the whole world and they, all the world becomes the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is separate and distinct, and it stays separate and distinct. And certainly there are those who will come into Jerusalem to worship the king and to worship God, to come to the temple. But the nation of Israel itself stays distinct. He rules from Zion against the other nations. And his rule against the other nations is not going to be a mirror image of what David's was as far as being the warrior king that David was. Unlike David, in verse 7, we see that this king will drink from the brook by the wayside. There's this picture and this idea that, that even on the way to battle and even in his own country, he is so dominating of everyone around him that he can take the time to relax and enjoy what's going on. This lifting up of his head is this idea of being lifted up in honor, this being lifted up in preeminence, to be above all the rest. And we see that this is this picture of peace that takes place. We saw that there was the office or the, the accomplishments of peace between the two offices in Zechariah of the office of priest and the office of king, and they carry out this thing, the ultimate thing that they were, the ultimate goal that they had was peace. And here we see that, that even with all this destruction going on and the death and the mayhem, as the king comes and rules, there's peace. Certainly man, when man goes to war and fights and, and desires for what is not his to take and, and use as his own from other nations or treats other nations in poor to despicable ways, peace is not the outcome. That's the outcome of this battle. That's the outcome of Christ coming at this time. So ultimately there's peace and his head is lifted up. He's above all and again all come and worship. What's interesting about this psalm is, is the number of times it's quoted in the New Testament, the number of times it's looked back at at the New Testament, in the New Testament. Um, but let's just look at uh, one of these. Let's go to Mark 12. Let's see how Jesus used this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this idea, or this uh, reference. Let's start in... in Well, just to give you some background, um, back in verse 18, we have the Sadducees coming to him, and uh, 
they were they pose a question between from 18 down to 27 on uh, what's what's the resurrection like now the, the way you remember this is, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a disagreement on whether or not uh, there's resurrection after you die. And the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they believed there wasn't. There you go. Now you won't forget it. Um, it's not mine. Somebody else gave it to me. Um, I think I, I can blame Gil Rue for that one. Um, so the Sadducees are the ones who... Uh, they're they're trying to trick or trying to get Jesus to come to de- 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 define and hopefully trap him in this idea of is there a resurrection and ultimately Jesus says that that down in verse twenty six regarding the fact that the dead rise again you have not read the book have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob is he he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So he defines that there is a life after this one. And that's going to be important when he comes to the ultimate point, which is he's going to quote, quote Psalm 110. That he's looking forward to that future. And then in 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well. And asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one Lord. Such a quote from Psalms. Yes. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So he's, he's, he is making it very clear. The worship of God is a monotheistic religion right? Our hero Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. That's actually out of Deuteronomy. Um, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, right, teacher, wouldn't that be great to be the scribe who tells, hey, Jesus, you're right. It's yeah, like, yes. just want to let you know I'm judging you and, and you're okay. That's something all Jewish people should recognize, what he said. That, that there's one God or that? Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, the first line of a prayer called the Shema. And it's like the most holy prayer Jewish people say every day. Yeah. So, so well established. The Lord our God is one Lord. There's only one. The scribe said to him, right teacher, you have stated that. He is one. There is no one else beside him. So he reiterates that. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifice. And Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently. I don't think he understood how intelligently he answered. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask any more questions. So, what follows right after that? Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And understand, up to this point, there are people who claim, who are looking to Jesus as being the son of David. They're starting to call him that because he's doing things like healing blind people, giving them their sight back. He's healing the lame. He's casting out demons. 
He's doing all the things that the son of David, that the Messiah, should be doing. But this is in the context of the Lord our God is one Lord. So if that's the case, then Jesus asks them, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. But the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're kind of done with him. They're like, whoa. Because what he just pointed out to them is the triune nature of God. He's pointing out to them his actual deity, that certainly the one who is going to be the Messiah, the one who is the Messiah, is established by God. God himself defines him as David's Lord. And the only way for a descendant of David to preempt David is through the actual divinity of that son. In fact, he even mentions the Holy Spirit being the one who puts these words into David. So what we're seeing is a a picture of the, the triune God. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refers to God speaking to his son, both man and God. Certainly the son of David, but also God. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making here and why he shuts them up so that they're no longer willing to answer any questions. Because remember, when, when someone in the New Testament, including Christ himself, quotes a verse in the Old Testament, he's usually not just after that one verse. He wants the context understood. And as the, the religious re- leaders of his day were, were giving him opposition and were standing up against him, and very soon planning for his death, Jesus is making sure they understand what the context is of them doing that is. They are now, he's, he's invoking Psalm 110 on them. He's saying, you need to understand, the Messiah that is to come will be a son of David. He has to be a descendant of David himself. We know that. But his greatness won't be because he's the son of David alone. It'll also be because he is chosen by the Lord. And he himself is deity. That there will be enemies of the Messiah when he comes. But there will be a time when he's removed from the earth and he will come back and judge. I think Jesus is making clear here that he is not only in the line of David and therefore right to claim his his position as Messiah, but he is also the one who stands above them in the religious sense, that he's in the line of Melchizedek, that he's appointed as priest, unlike the Levites. The Levites were ultimately subject to him in his line of priesthood, and that ultimately he will judge. And I think that's the picture that that Jesus is giving them. He's unpacking all, or he's he's giving them this package by quoting Psalm 110.1. And they would have known enough to unpack it. 
Now, they don't answer him. And, and the other point I just want to make about this um, is that they, they don't answer his... Well, he doesn't even interpret it. He, they don't answer his quoting of this verse because they know what the verse means. There's an understanding of what it is they're dealing with here. And they don't like it. And so we ourselves, let's see. Yeah, over in Matthew, it's a little more clear. Matthew 22, 44 through 46. Jesus quotes the Psalm 110 and said, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And then Matthew 23 goes on to show the Jesus then attacks the Pharisees. He clearly defines who, it, who his enemies are. To the point we're down in verse, um, verse 10, don't, don't be called leaders. Don't be like these people, the Pharisees. For there's only one leader, the Christ. He sets up that, that these are the enemies of the Christ. I am the Christ. And then he goes into the woes against the Pharisees, continuing in, in chapter 23. And then ultimately in 24, he talks about, well, end of 10, 23, he talks about the fact that he wishes that, that Jerusalem, that he could gather them together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, his desire to see Zion treated as it should be. And then 24, he starts talking about the end times. All flowing from his quoting of Psalm 110, verse 1. And then he goes on to explain, you are my enemies, religious leaders of the day, and I will come back and I will judge that this is all going according to plan. The reason they didn't want to answer him is because they understood what the psalm said. The psalm spoke on its own, and looking back, they had the information ahead of the, or in front of them. They knew and under, they had enough to understand what was going on when Christ came, and they refused to believe. Turn to John 3. We see this, this idea that there was enough information in the Old Testament for them to know and understand. The New Testament just fleshes out what the Old Testament predicted and what the Old Testament taught. We have Nicodemus, one of, one of the great teachers of, of Judaism at the time of Christ, comes to Jesus and, and wants to know who Jesus is and, and his comment there in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The signs that he's doing are the fact that he is able to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, the lame walk. All these things that are pointing to him as the Messiah. He doesn't want to say it, so he's just saying, we know you're a good teacher because of all these signs. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
or kingdom of God? Not exactly the question he was asking, that Nicodemus was asking, and Jesus here has taken him beyond that and said, look, your question isn't, who am I? Your question really is, if you're the one, how do I get to God? Because that's the ultimate question, is what do you do for you? What is your ultimate question? Is how am I actually right with God? Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter the second time into the mother's womb and be born, can he? That's ridiculous. We would agree with him. That's ridiculous. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where you are going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus gives him this picture, these different pictures, this idea there's a natural birth and there's a second birth. There's a spiritual birth. There's a water birth. There's a spirit birth. Nicodemus, if you want to be saved, you have to be spiritually, spiritually reborn or spiritually born. You have to be born again in a spiritual way. Don't be amazed at this. And then he defines the work of the Holy Spirit in all this. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus doesn't get it. And it's not because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. It's not because the Holy Spirit hasn't come in power in Acts yet that he doesn't get it and doesn't understand this being born again thing. It's because he doesn't know his Bible up to that point. Jesus rebukes him. Jesus answers and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. All these things, Nicodemus, you should understand with the information you've been given thus far. You should have a good understanding of what's going on. And I think when we look at Psalm 110, we see why they should have had an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. They should have known who he was by what he was doing and what he was accomplishing. And when he says, when he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, they should have a real clear understanding of what he's claiming. Certainly the religious leaders, the teachers should. So what does that mean to us? We'll close up here. Why is Psalm 110 given? both then and now. I think its role is the same. It's to make sure we understand who Jesus Christ is, what God's role was in sending him, and what it means to us. Don't miss it. Nicodemus, yes, he was a teacher of Israel. That's what his job was, was to know and understand the Old Testament and to be looking for. He was literally charged with looking at the Old Testament so he could tell the people what to expect and how to act. In regard to that and he failed he wasn't seeing the messiah himself right in front of him and if he was he was rejecting the idea he couldn't wrap his mind around it 
you yourselves coming here week after week have exposure to who Christ is. He is the Son. He is ruling at the right hand of the Father this very moment, awaiting for the time period when God will make him, his enemies, a footstool for his feet. And you have to ask yourself, is all this knowledge I'm being given of any value to me? Does it do anything for me? Am I using it to prevent myself from being judged? Am I an enemy of Christ? Because if you are, it explains very clearly what happens and how Christ deals with his enemy. He is the only pure one, the only one who is, as Hebrews says, the only one who's been granted the power to be a, the, the high priest because of his flawless life. He's the only one that can be your intermediate to God. He's the only one who can make you right with God. But he's not, he's not just about peace. He's about his peace. He's not about individuals who stand against him and are enemies. Just be aware, if you're an enemy of Christ, and you know if you are, he will judge. That's the point. He will come that day. Don't be like the crowd that one day loved Jesus and the next day were shouting, crucify him. Don't be like the religious leaders who have all this knowledge, but they never put it all together for they refuse for their own pride to acknowledge what's right in front of them. It's right in front of you guys. You guys are, are, will answer for all that you've been given. Back at the beginning of the Psalms, when we started Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Don't be an enemy to the Son. Pursue Him. Let's pray.